When you're assessing your patient, how do you remember all the things you're meant to be looking at? I've got an A to Z that might help. Let's go listen. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. Now, I've been joined once again by Dr. Paul Hughes-Webb, one of my colleagues at Warwick Hospital, where I work. Paul recently did a podcast with me about anemia, which has been quite a popular download, actually. So he's champing at the bit to be a podcast star again on I'm iTunes. I'm not sure that was true, was it, Jonathan? <laughs> I think you've twisted my arm again. Champing at the bit. Um, Paul during ward rounds in the morning basically runs through a checklist in his own head and I've seen him do it many times um, and it goes from A to Z we've all got these flat hugs checklists for example which cover some of the stuff that we need to do Paul's is a bit more thorough than that it doesn't necessarily dwell on any of it for too long but um, I thought it might be nice for Paul and I to go through the A to Z initially just um, talking about what it covers uh, briefly uh, chatting about the individual aspects of it and then maybe uh, we're debating whether to actually break it down a little bit more carefully in future podcasts and actually talk about some of the research that um, justifies some of the questions that we actually ask so Paul away you go uh, just before I start talking of twisting arms, Jonathan, how's your arm feeling? Oh, very good. Yeah, he's making fun of me because I've got a great big tattoo on my right forearm now. Um, I'll stick it on Twitter for those of you that want to see it. Um, I'll put it on Facebook as well, but it's a tattoo of a rose. Um, and uh, Paul's face was a look of absolute horror when he saw it for the first time. It, it looks very pretty. <laughs> is the nappy rash cream helping? It? The nappy rash cream is definitely helping. Good to know. Anyway, moving on. Yes. Um, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for uh, inviting me to talk again. Um, uh, as you said, uh, I use this A to Z on most of my ward rounds to try and make sure I don't miss anything. I'm quite keen on a checklist and I kind of uh, dreamt this up in a way when I used to work um, on area medical retrievals and the pilots all had a checklist prior to take off and prior to landing and most of their procedures. And it was a checklist to ensure that they hadn't missed any of the basics or any of the um, things that they could plan for. So I thought that this would be beneficial for me to have this checklist in my head for when I do ITU rounds and see every single patient. So it's a personal aid memoir of mine um, that I do on my ITU ward rounds. And it's been developed over the last sort of 15 years. And I perform it on every single patient on ITU. Um, including all the long-stay patients, even the ones that are fit for the ward. Um, and it, although it is every letter of the alphabet, I feel that it doesn't actually take that long. And I don't know whether you'd disagree with me or not, but I, I don't think it extends my ward rounds particularly. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Um, and I've adapted it over the years, and I'm not saying that this is the one that everyone should use or everyone should you know, copy, but... Um, use it as much as people feel it's beneficial um, there are some tenuous links of the letters in here um, but um, if anyone feels that it's anything useful or, or if they think they could add please don't hesitate to get in touch with us for, for me as well Paul I think one of the benefits is um, bearing in mind that there might be some new ICU doctors or nurses um, this is useful for them to hear just to realise some of the thinking we have behind some of the questions that we ask so um, they may never use it as an aid memoir, but I think this podcast will be helpful to, for them to hear the kind of things that we might talk about. Yeah, um, and it's not a 
comprehensive assessment of the patient but it's definitely a structure to ensure that the basics aren't missed and um, most of these you'll have probably dealt with or come across during your examination of the patient or just looking at their bloods of that day but I think it's um, it's a useful sort of list for me personally to hang my hat on and I feel confident once I've gone through this that I've not missed any basics. So it is literally an A to Z um, and the first letter being A is for airway. Um, I always ask the nurse in the bed space um, what airway they have in, the size, the type, the length is important, uh, especially as I've quite often gone round on the ITU rounds and found that the airway has migrated somewhat, so the ET tube may have migrated in or out. And I think quite a lot of intensivists and junior doctors and nurses may have found, come across patients who've had a herniated ET tube where the ET tube cuff has herniated through the cords. And I think checking that every single day personally on your rounds is a useful thing to do. And it's not uncommon to find, I've often found tubes have migrated in somewhat and you want to see where they were documented put in by the original intubator and whether that correlates with the x-ray immediately post-intubation. Post mm -hmm. So next I go on to B, so for breathing, uh, do a respiratory examination. So a full respiratory examination and a plan. Um, you want to uh, look at the FiO2, uh, look at the PA2 and the PaCO2 and how they correlate. Uh, look at uh, tidal volumes and we'll come on to that again later in the A to Z and have a plan on what you're doing respiratory so is there a respiratory weaning plan is there a, a plan to uh, uh, increase their time on a tracheostomy mask for example and that's where I do on B so coming on to C, uh, obviously circulatory and do a full cardiovascular examination and a plan for this. And in this I'd include their peripheral pulses, peripheral perfusion, see whether they've got any, uh, any delay, see whether they've got any discrepancy between one side or not. Um, obviously I wouldn't be doing that on every single round, um, only on those patients I'd be suspecting any, uh, um, any uh, altered changes. Mm -hmm. So... D, I then go on to uh, an appropriate neurological examination and plan. And the reason I say uh, appropriate neurological examination for disability is um, I think uh, the Glasgow Coma Scale, for example, would be a uh, uh, something that I would definitely advocate on anyone who's had a had a neurological injury, um, do a full Glasgow coma scale on them. However, with your well patients um, who have just got a little bit of confusion, I think having a Glasgow coma scale um, dictated uh, or a uh, um, an assessment may not be f as advantageous as somebody talking to you about what their delirium score is, whether they're cam ICU positive or not. I think we had a good example of that this morning, didn't we? We in did. That, um, we were quoted as a patient having a GCS of 14 out of 15, and my question was, okay, how are we getting 14? Where are we losing a point? And the feeling was that because the patient was a little bit confused that that would lose them a, a, a V and I said I, I don't see how that works it doesn't work you know it's are they making incomprehensible sounds are they making are they saying inappropriate words neither of those things are true they may be confused but they're not a GCS 
minus one point as a consequence of that. Either. That's, That's where the right. CAM ICU comes into it. Yeah. yeah. And I think, and, and it's always useful for people to actually to talk about the Glasgow Coma scale as opposed to the Glasgow Coma score. Mm. And uh, I think it's really important that they say what the score for eyes is, motor, verbal, not just say it's a GCS of 13. I think we, I think we can become quite lazy can't we and yeah. we can walk up to a patient and kind of hazard a guess really and if you actually score it properly then it's a whole different yeah. ball game and especially if you're going to try and use that to prognosticate then i think yeah. the, the the best thing would be to, to use the gcsp score which takes into the pupillary um reactions and and so uh uh, if you've, for example, got both pupils unresponsive to light, then that would be a score of two, and you take that score off your original GCS. So, for example, the lowest you can get on a GCSP would be a one, right. um, and that would obviously give you very poor neurological uh, outcome and poor prognostic signs. But okay. um, we can come on to that later if we want yep. to in the future. Yeah. Um, so coming on to E, um, this at this point I look at electrolytes and. Um, uh, I'd look at all their electrolytes, including their phosphate and magnesium, and appropriate assessment of these and replacement if it's clinically appropriate. I say clinically appropriate because, as Jonathan knows, I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about phosphate and um, replacing phosphate and what time you've taken the test, and we can go into that again at a later date if you wish. Hmm. Um, and and uh, the electrolyte point, this is where you're assessing their um, uh, urea and creatinine as well, is it? Uh, Does I, that come later? I, I will look at it during that uh, time because um, it just so happens that on our... Um, record it's the most appropriate time to do that but um i will again revisit that when i come to renal okay yeah yeah so then g uh, uh gastro f, um, you missed f sorry f i apologize yep. thanks i can't even do the uh no, it's worrying the isn't it it is so yeah f um for fluids so then i do a careful assessment of the patient's fluid status and look at their fluid prescription it's the most uh common finding is on those patients who you may have had an uh, an admission from the ward which may have had a multitude of fluid resuscitation and you often see that they've been given a lot of solute load so they may well have been given a huge amount of Hartman's as their resuscitation fluid or or sometimes uh, a lot less commonly these days but sometimes you even see them with replacement of a lot of 0.9% saline um, and I look at that and just look at what sort of solute load they had. Is this appropriate? And uh, what's their urine output doing with this? And whether they're grossly overloaded and grossly edematous? And does this correlate with the clinical picture? Um, I look at whether I feel that they're intravascularly deplete. I quite like the simple, you know, straight leg uh, raise yeah. just to see if that improves their cardiac output. I think that's a very good clinical sign. Um, but I think... Um, I think fluid status is one of these things that I struggle with even now. Yeah. And um, I think it's a very complex um, topic and I think it's very difficult to know exactly what your patient's intravascular fluid volume is. And I think um, I think even the great and the good find the glycocalyx a, a tricky thing to understand. And I think um, I wouldn't beat yourselves up for finding fluid status a tricky um i think topic. as well at the bedside it, it does become quite tricky doesn't it because like you say the glycocalyx membrane it's it's all very well in theory but by the bedside it doesn't necessarily work that well yeah um and you know i i then i'm hearing things nowadays like you know a, a fluid responsive patient isn't necessarily a dry patient and you kind of think well yeah that's lovely but give me something i can work with really um and 
I think, like you say, things like the passive leg raise, certainly on the um, spontaneously breathing patient, is quite a useful tool, isn't it? But yeah. we've got to remember that our patients are ventilated, a lot of them as well, which changes the, the thoracic pressures yeah. quite dramatically. And I think it's also important to understand with fluid status that um, obviously there's a big push to try and get patients quite dry, which is, which is I think, appropriate, but we need to remember that their their kidneys do need a, a degree of perfusion, obviously, and also there may well be some, some evidence that having them too dry can have a neurological outcome deficit. Mm-hmm. And um, you've got to think, right, what's going to be the... You've got to be pragmatic in these decisions and to, to discuss whether in your own mind and with the nurse and the colleagues on your ward round whether you feel that these patients have more risk of a neurological poor outcome, renal poor outcome, or does a little bit of fluid overload really is that really affecting their mm. their chest so much that you can't cope with it for mm. a little bit longer mm. so uh, next going to g um this is when i uh examine the gastrointestinal um examination so i do a full abdominal examination um always, always ask the nurses whether their bowels have been opened if so when um and whether they've been absorbing their feed or not just to reiterate, that's not the nurses' bowels we're worried about there. <laughs> clearly, <laughs> no, that's right. It's a bit personal. Yeah, we ask them. We ask them out of a coffee later. Whether the pa- patients' bowels have opened, whether they need um, laxatives, it's, it's really common. I'm sure most people will find on their ward rounds that patients um, have um, had reduced bowel opening, or whether they've got you know looser stools, and whether that stool. Um, uh, there's always the question of whether it should be sent off or whether it's an appropriate loose stool um, mm. or whether you are really genuinely worried about something like C. diff or something along those lines. Um, so then uh, for H, I go on to haematology and haematinics. Um, so I assess their full blood count. Um, also at that time, I do their clotting, um, see if there's any clotting uh, derangement um, and uh, if appropriate, correct them. Um, I have a very... Um, uh, my threshold for correcting a lot of these things is is um, high. Is that right? Yeah, I don't correct it very. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It needs to be pretty low before I want to correct most things. You're fairly um, tolerant of things not being as they should be within reasonable boundaries. Aren't yeah, you? I think certainly if if you look at um, biological reserve, humans. Well, most animals have a huge biological reserve. Hence, we've managed to evolve to where we have. And certainly, if you look at platelet counts, then there's a you know probably a ten to fifteen fold biological reserve in our platelet numbers. So mm. there's very little um, strong evidence on when to transfuse platelets. And I certainly think if you're not going to be doing anything grossly um, invasive, then low platelet counts can certainly be tolerated down to uh, above double figures. Certainly should be fine, and I don't think there'd be a huge uh, risk of spontaneous bleeding. Uh, if you're not doing anything invasive mm. and if there's no obvious risk of uh, intracranial bleeds, etc., etc. Um, obviously, um, everyone knows about the trick trials um, back in the late 90s, and um, uh, most people wouldn't be advocating giving any blood above uh, uh, an HP of 70. Okay. Um, so then I come on to I, so for infection. Um, so this is when I give an assessment of the inflammatory and microbiological markers. I review any cultures that they've had done recently and look at the appropriateness of the antibiotics. Have a look at their antibiotics, see which ones they're on. Is that appropriate for the bug that you think? And most importantly, can we stop them? And are we at a stage where we can stop the antibiotics? I think um, 
antibiotic stewardship is obviously really, really important. And um, I do worry greatly about um, their patients getting very unwell um, and being started on some very powerful broad-spectrum antibiotics. And we're very fortunate that we have uh, good microbiological ward rounds and I'm sure most ICUs have that and um, I certainly lean on my microbiology <coughs> colleagues for for antibiotic guidance and to know which which bug we're expecting and which bugs we should be treating and they're very helpful in uh, helping us uh, pick the, the correct antibiotic. So um, this is where uh, it starts becoming a bit more tenuous so for J it's joules and joules um, uh, is for energy so this is where I do an energy assessment of the patient and I check two things here one their blood sugar level um, because we know that um, uh, good blood sugar control is beneficial in ICU so uh, uh, blood sugar level between 4 and 10 so in single fingers above 4 is appropriate um, and I also check the album albumin level and I think albumin there's a there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that it's a good prognostic it's a reasonable prognostic indicator so if patients coming in very albumin deplete then that's a poor prognostic sign um, also it helps us uh, assess whether whether what we're doing is um, is uh, is working in terms of is there uh, is their TPM working is there are they absorbing their feed appropriately this this is maybe a question for a later podcast. In fact, it is a question for a, a later podcast. But my debate with myself is when to give and when not to give albumin. Um, and I think we need to talk about that in a later yeah. podcast. But I, I think that's quite a good uh, a good question. I think that would come back to our fluid debate earlier, and we yeah. can we can maybe go into that at a later date. And yeah, it'd be nice to have a chat. Um, so then next um, for K again another slightly tenuous link. So it's Kelvin, um, and Kelvin as you, as you know is. Um, uh, unit of measurement of temperature and so this is where I check the temperature of the patient and um, every good grammar school boy should know that I would <laughs> Absolutely. have thought um, and whether the uh, patient is able or not to maintain normothermia and if they're unable to maintain normothermia then this again is a poor prognostic indicator and uh, again I look as well if they're pyrexial and is this pyrexia um, appropriate are they do they have a uh, an infection are they on some drugs that uh, that produce pyrexia and um, uh, we use dexmedetomidine here and um, dexmed can cause drug-induced pyrexia and I've seen that a few times on our patients uh, here on the ICU that have had um, have had a drug-induced pyrexia from it and it's a recognised um, effect on the literature in the drug. Uh, so coming on to L I go through lines and here I uh, check all the lines and cannulas and I'll ask the nurse and occasionally I'll check them all myself and I'll ask them what cannulas they have in, do they have a central line in, the A-line, vascath, urinary catheters, drains and most importantly take out any of those lines that aren't needed and certainly take out any that have any evidence of phlebitis and I think it's really important to do that on both your ward rounds each day and it's, uh, it's not uncommon that you'll find a a cannula that may have been put in by uh, ambulance crew pre-hospitally and hopefully these are always taken out but sometimes they can be missed in the heat of the moment and it's important that when you have time on your ward rounds just to check these and have a look at them all. So it brings us on to M, medications. Uh, I go through the drug chart carefully 
and check the appropriateness of each drug and whether it should be continued or discontinued or if there are any other drugs that we need to add on. So the main things that I would discontinue would be um, also prophylaxis drugs if we no longer need them, so stress also prophylaxis or um, occasionally you might be looking at the uh, low molecular weight heparins, whether they are appropriate to be um, given or not given and uh, just to ensure that they're a lot at the times you see the cardiac medications that they're on and sometimes they're not appropriate to be given whilst they're on the ICU. And I think it's important to go through that drug chart carefully and look through what they won previously prior to coming in and the e-records is often a very good location to find that and obviously um, the pharmacists are really good at uh, documenting what their pre-admission drugs are. For N it's nutrition and I assess the mode of nutrition and are we meeting that patient's requirement. I find um, nutrition a bit of a black box really and I think the dietitians are really good at assessing that and I'm never quite sure how they manage it or what calculations they're using but they seem to come up with a calculation that tells me their nutritional requirement and I very rarely argue <laughs> anything different to what they recommend. Um, we can go into TPN and uh, parental nutrition at a later date. Um, but it's always important to ensure that you keep me up with their nutritional requirement. For O, it's oral care. And I think this is uh, something that is quite often missed and sometimes we, we don't pay attention to. It's really important, I think, to look at the uh, oral cavity of your patients. Is there any uh, evidence of uh, thrush or stomatitis from the endotracheal tubes are we managing the secretions appropriately from the ET tube and uh, are we preventing those secretions falling down onto your central line and the dressing that's uh, only a few centimeters away from the oral cavity and obviously there's uh, used to be a bit of research on um, decolonizing the oral cavity and whether we should be using probiotics and things like that we don't on this unit um, but I think it's really important to, to be aware of the oral cavity make sure that it is clean and make sure that patient's getting good oral care if nothing else it's pretty uncomfortable for patients having uh, poor oral care and they're often dry may well need the uh, little liquid sponges just for a little bit of comfort measures if nothing else and uh, it's important to treat anything so all thrush is extremely sore and extremely painful patients and I think it's important to actively treat those if we can. That brings me on to P and pain. Assessing patients pain is really vital and ensure what analgesia is prescribed is appropriate for that patient. They may be prescribed a PCA but not have the ability to press it and you may need to alter that for a nurse controlled analgesia. They may need an epidural. The epidural may not be um, working appropriately. It may be one sided. It may need topping up. It may be too dense a block and they're getting discomfort from having a very dense block. So I think uh, asking the patient themselves, are they in any pain? What's the pain like? What we can do for that pain is really Im important. So Q is another slightly um, tenuous link and that stands for quetiapine and quetiapine as you probably know is an atypical antipsychotic which has got some evidence that is beneficial in ICU delirium and uh, there's quite a few papers out there and it's a pretty good drug for ICU delirium but it reminds me to check 
whether this patient has any degree of delirium. Has a CAM-ICU score been done that day? Has that patient got any signs of delirium? If they're what I call placidly delirious, I tend to just leave them. Um, and uh, it's only when they start becoming very anxious and picky and start picking at their lines or a danger to themselves when you might start thinking about other drugs perhaps and also I think it's really important to uh, to talk to the patient and explain to them what's going on and we were involved in the poppy trial um, a couple of years ago I think it was mm -hmm. now yeah. and um, I think uh, whilst the trial yeah, uh, if, if nothing else, the trial gave us a reminder of how to talk to patients and how to to give them a little bit of psychological support in these scenarios. And I think um, I think that's helpful for those patients to uh, to be with them. And I also think it's really important to discuss that with family members because family members are often find it very very distressing yeah. to see patients with severe delirium. And it's really important to remember those when you're having those family conferences with them explain to them that delirium is common it's uh, often resolves it can last for several days but um, to reassure them that it's something that we see commonly it's not that we're ignoring it but we're trying not to pollute them with any further medications sure uh, ARV is for renal and I look at their renal function and renal replacement therapy if necessary and what their renal replacement therapy prescription is what's going on with the uh, filter or not and you would have probably already checked their electrolytes um, up on E and look at their urea and creatinine as well whilst looking at electrolytes but um, and you'd have already assessed their fluid balance with F but um, it's just to remind you to look at their renal function what their renal parameters is there any other renal problems going on such as uh, renal tubular acidosis and whether we should be treating that and what our filter prescription is and what we're going to be doing with the CVVHF mm -hmm. um, S is sedation and it's re I've got a real bee in my bonnet to ensure that we do a regular daily sedation hold of all patients. And I think there's still this misunderstanding that a sedation hold means trial of extubation. And it's really important to try and remind people and educate people that a sedation hold is not that we're going to aim to extubate them today. It's just to stop it, make sure that that sedation is off, and recommence it at... I've yet to find the, the right phrase or way of saying to nurses that thing. You know, do we call it sedation hold, a sedation holiday, a pause? Yeah. Um, you know, what do we call it to make nurses realise that it only means extubation if extubation is appropriate? Yeah. But it should be done each and every day. It's the same thing as... Um, I commonly come across patients with a sedation score of four or five mm. and I don't understand why yeah. patients where there's no good reason to do that. You know, clearly if they're paralyzed, then yes, we need to be heavily sedated. Yeah. Um, but other than that, it, I, I'm having been an ITU nurse, I feel entitled to say this, that ITU nurses like their patients to be tidy in bed. Mm. They don't like them moving around too much. And sometimes all a patient's got to be doing is lifting their hand up and reaching for their tube and getting nowhere near it. And then the sedation goes up and now yep. we've got a sedation score of four or five and it's been proven to do harm. Absolutely. And it's something that we're still working on, I think. Yeah. And I think I do understand that fear that that patient is going to pull their tube out or pull their line out. And if they're on high dose vasopressors or if they're on a high oxygen requirement, that's a, you know, a concerning thing. But it's 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 very rare. Yeah, thankfully, and and, and there are studies out there that have shown that it's very rare as well. Yeah, but, you know, it doesn't it doesn't happen. No, and so. I think my bigger worry is 
as we all know, over-sedating patient causes harm, increases your number of ventilated days. And if you just look at the context-sensitive half-life of the drugs we're using, if we're not giving them sedation holidays, then we're going to be you know, running into problems on the day that we actually do want to start extubating them and reducing their uh, ventilator days and increasing their risk of VAPs. Yeah. So T, thromboprophylaxis is T. Is it appropriate and is it prescribed and at what dose? So uh, just as a caveat here, I'd caution people to remember about low molecular weight heparins and they're being renally cleared. So just be careful on those patients who've got renal impairment. Um, obviously, low molecular weight heparins are difficult to assess whether um, they're full efficacy. Um, so you could do an anti-10A assay or if you've got a TEG, you could do a TEG. But um, um, on the whole, most people, we, d we don't need to. We just TED, give them TED stockings? On the immobile intensive care patient. Yeah, so Ted stockings. I've, uh, I've, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I, th I think I'm right in saying, and I'm sure on, you'll have your lots neck of out, listeners stick your neck out. saying otherwise that um, there's not much evidence that Ted stockings are of huge benefit in the non-ambulant patient on intensive care. And I've seen a lot of patients where they've been missized or whether they're not fully over the limb. And I don't think they're of a huge benefit. I think Flotron boots, so, so the, um, so the, comp the um, uh, compression devices um, to uh, re increase venous return are useful. Um, but I think TED stockings aren't as useful. I do not think that there's a huge amount of evidence that in the non-ambulant patient on intensive care that they give any benefit over and above the chemical prophylaxis of low molecular weight heparins. Well, if there's anyone out there that knows different, at CC Practitioner on Twitter, please let me know. Um, tell me why we're wrong um, and we can perhaps discuss it. Always open to opinion. Um, but I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you that TED stockings, whilst they increase the pressure around the calf, surely that's only going to be of any benefit if the muscle under that calf is actually moving as yeah. well, which is then going to help the venous return. If the muscles isn't going to move, it doesn't seem much point in doing it, really. And I think for the ambulant patients, yeah, yeah agree. useful. But yeah. for the non-ambulant patients of, of limited use, if any. Yeah. That brings us on to U, so that U is ulcer prophylaxis, and uh, does the patient need stress ulcer prophylaxis, and is it prescribed appropriate, appropriately? I'm not a big fan of proton pump inhibitors. I think they have a lot of other problems associated with them. I'm a bigger fan of uh, H2 antagonists, so ranitidine. Um, proton pump inhibitors are appropriate for some of the patients, say the ones who've had perforated duodenal ulcers, for example. Um, but it's important to check are they on ulcer prophylaxis? If so, do they need to be on ulcer prophylaxis? Can you stop it? So are they absorbing their feed and is there a, a regime that their feed is fully working? Or um, if they're not on it, do they need to be started on it? So V is for ventilator. And I look at the ventilator settings. If you've not already done this on B, it's just a reminder to go back and ensure that your ventilator settings are appropriate. Is the patient getting the appropriate um, volumes for their uh, ideal body weight? And uh, has a VAP assessment been done that day? It's really important to make sure that you do your ventilator-associated pneumonia assessments on each of your patients to ensure that you're not missing a, a new VAP. Mm -hmm. 
W is for weaning and is there an ongoing weaning plan and what is your weaning plan for that day whether that be a ventilatory weaning plan, a renal weaning plan, a rehab weaning plan and I think those are always really important and I think here it's really important to 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 think about the the rehabilitation in this weaning it's not just weaning off off the uh, support so whether that be renal respiratory or cardiovascular support but also to to wean them off itu if that makes sense yeah. so what is your rehab pathway what is your rehab goals um what are the physios doing how are they getting them up and out of bed and all those sort of things so it's kind of for for weaning i'm not just talking about those machines i'm talking about weaning them out of the unit and that's when you need your multidisciplinary team input to to tell you where you're heading and how they're doing that x is for x-rays and imaging have you checked all your imaging from the last images and if you're on a unit where you have a change of staff has has somebody checked that x-ray um, that was done at the end of the last shift and have you looked at it has that been documented that you've looked at it and are there any further imaging requirements today do you need to do have a repeat ct scan have you uh, done the echo that you wanted uh, and has that been documented for why it literally is why why is this patient here is it appropriate have the family been spoken to so all those sort of why questions and it's uh, important there to ask whether that patient's family have been spoken to has that patient been spoken to um, have we asked the patient is this uh, what you want and that sort of thing and i think it's always important to ask that question is that and finally z is for zeds and has the patient been sleeping as anybody who's ever been an inpatient in hospital it's incredibly hard to sleep in a hospital and even harder to sleep on an intensive care unit and uh, at that stage i think about the location of the patient on the unit that we work on here there's a few side rooms um, that are not full side rooms in the sense that they've got a uh, airlock bay per se they're they're a bit like a they've got a um, kind of sliding doors and they're a bit quieter you can pull the sliding doors at night give the patient a bit more peace and quiet and for those patients who are who are stepping down from level three care and uh, who are, are sort of more aware of what's going on i think those bays are more appropriate for them so if they're in one of our busier bays which are a bit noisier and a bit more straight in front of the nurse's station i think i would then try and move them to a quieter bay if they're not sleeping and that's always important to talk about or think about when you think about zeds so that's my a to z Okay, brilliant. Um, while you've been talking, I've had lots and lots of ideas. So um, my idea is that possibly we are going to just break this down into smaller sections. What I might do is go through the list. Paul, is there any chance that you could email that to me and I can put it on my website and yeah, go yeah. into the show notes? So you're yeah. happy for people to help themselves? Yeah, to absolutely. It? Yeah. I mean, it's um, as I told one of my colleagues, it's a pint of beer for each letter that there, you use. There you go. So you, you're going to win 26 pints. Um, I think it's got all the letters in there, hasn't it? We haven't it missed has, any. So. No. Um, but what I might what I might do as well is is go through each and every one of them and just try and get some of the the, the key pieces of research that directs some of those things that we've spoken about. So you know, for instance, nutrition. Let's look at the Aspen guidelines, the renal. Let's see why we decided that we shouldn't put people on uh, filters too soon now. Sedation. Why is it that we do sedation holds? There's lots of real cornerstone pieces of research that I think. If you know those cornerstones, and they do change from time to time, you know, the Rose study has just come out that tells us that we shouldn't 
be paralyzing patients anymore um, and it's just having an awareness of that kind of thing and yep. I think maybe we could break it down in that way and um, perhaps uh, produce one or two other podcasts as a consequence of it that might be quite useful for the listeners so thank you mate no worries um, we'll go back and do some work now um, and hopefully you can listen to the podcasts that are coming up soon uh, with those details as I've just said thank you very much thanks Jonathan so that was great and thanks to Paul for doing that the A to Z I think that's a nice easy mechanism it is one that he runs through on uh, every patient on the ward round it doesn't take long he does whiz through it but it's nice to understand some of the things that we do and hopefully we can start to pull that apart in a little bit more detail in the future before you go I just wanted to let you know of some of the other resources that I have available if you're new to this particular podcast um, if you go to www.criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk there's a lot of resources there that I've been working on a lot of resources on mechanical ventilation I've just started a new series on point of care ultrasound as well just breaking down the uh, the views that you need for um, cardiac ultrasound that's in its infancy there's only four videos on there at the moment but hopefully I'm going to be working on a lot more to help people understand what views they're actually seeing and, and understand what's going on in all those squiggly lines that we see. The me mechanical ventilation series uh, is getting larger and larger all the time um, and that um, is also on YouTube so if you go to my web page and you go to one of the mechanical ventilation blogs you will often see that there is an associated uh, video with them which are based on my YouTube channel, which is also something that's growing. So um, the other thing I wanted to tell you about was uh, a course I'm doing with a company called Teachable. So it's at teachable.com. And again, you can link to that through my website. One of the pages is uh, links directly to the teachable.com. And I've started a series of teaching courses on there. There is a free one on BiPAP. You're welcome to go and have a look at that for yourself. The others are to be paid for, but it's nine pounds so I'm you know it's not an extortionate amount of money and I hope you will find those useful as well that's a library that's going to be growing and growing with me hopefully over time um, so that I can help people understand some of the complexities behind uh, what goes on in critical care and I've based those on the steps program that we use here in the UK so you've got um, ITU steps one two and three uh, ITU steps one is the basics um, and that's what I'm basing the early videos on so if you want to know anything um, hopefully eventually it will all be there on the teachable page on my website which is www.criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk Okay, I won't keep you any longer. Just to say that I've just come back from the British Association of Critical Care Nurses Conference, which was held in Edinburgh this year. It was a fantastic conference. It had a real good feel to it. Um, I think everybody enjoyed it. We got lots and lots and lots of live streaming done on Facebook. So if you want to see that, go to their Facebook video. So that's the British Association of Critical Care Nurses Facebook page um, and there you will be able to see a lot of the videos we did and uh, there was a lot also went, went out on their Instagram account I don't do Instagram uh, it's not that I don't want to it's just not something I've got to grips with but um, there's an awful lot on their Instagram page as well and they're also tweeting quite madly whilst I was there that's enough from me thanks for listening uh, once again, I've got an episode coming out very soon when I chatted to an American doctor about how the incidence of pressure injuries relates to how well a patient may or may not do in intensive care. And I've just literally had a conversation with an associate professor in America who was talking about nurses' attitudes towards sedation in the States. Thanks for listening and we'll speak again soon. Bye bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. 
If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner, or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>